in the Gospels, there's a clear turning point when the opposition to Jesus turns toxic. You know, before this point, the opponents, the religious leaders, were debating with Jesus. But now they try and entrap him in his words. Uh, before him, they were asking him questions. But now, from this turning point, they now plot his death. Why? Because Jesus' miracles were never just supernatural acts of power, but dramatic signs. There were signs that pointed to him, that he was the Son of God, and there were signs that pointed to our need, our need to believe. And this upset the religious leaders. So this morning we come to that tipping point in John's Gospel where the investigation and questioning of the religious leaders turns to scheming and plotting Jesus' death. And it all comes about because Jesus cared for, he sought out a lost soul who was without help and without hope. And so today we come to the third sign of the seven in the Gospel of John. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, our need, and Jesus' wonderful power to meet that need. Pray this in his name. Amen. So let's dive into our passage with the first couple of verses of John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So Jesus, remember Jesus is based up north in Galilee, but from time to time he would travel a few days journey to the south because that's where Jerusalem was and the religious festival. So we're not told exactly which festival Jesus is going down to, but while he's there he goes to a pool called Bethesda. It's by the Sheep Gate, so it's one of the main entrances in the walled city of Jerusalem. And we're told that this pool has five covered colonnades. Interesting that the detail that John goes into through his gospel, he'll often put some of this detail in that the other gospel don't, uh, don't put. So some background about this. It wasn't until the late 1800s that excavations near the Sheep Gate unearthed a pool complex with the ruins of how many? Five colonnades, four in a row and then a fifth over the pool. So if you travel to Jerusalem today, you can visit these ruins. Now up till then, skeptics had ridiculed Christians for this whole story, saying, well, there's no archaeological evidence, there's no reference to Bethesda, the pool, in any ancient documents. This story was just made up. And so that was a criticism leveled at Christians for a number of years, centuries in fact, until the late 1800s, it was unearthed. And so that particular criticism was silenced. And even today there are archaeological discoveries that confirm what the Bible says is accurate and true. Wonderful, isn't it, when we have those opportunities. Uh, next in our passage, we're told some puzzling details. Let's have a look at these from verse 3. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, in my Bible now, I have to shoot down to the footnotes. And so verse 4 is down at the bottom of my footnotes. 
They waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured by, of whatever disease they had. As it so happened, those same excavations uncovered near the pool complex a faded fresco of an angel stirring up the waters. Very interesting, isn't it? However, there's a big caution here. We cannot read too much into this footnote, this detail. The reason why modern translations often have the detail about the angel stirring the waters as a footnote is because the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible don't have this account. So most Bible scholars are in agreement that this was a footnote added afterwards. Because John's Gospel is aimed mainly at Gentiles, it was probably written just after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And so people reading this were wondering why there were all this, these disabled at the pool. And later on, in verse 7, when the invalid starts talking about the waters being troubled, those original readers would have no idea what was happening. So it appears that someone very early on added a wee footnote just to explain to the readers what was happening. And we need to be careful because that the angel came and stirred up the waters is actually not endorsed by the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that this happened. The Bible just adds that detail to say that's why the invalid and all the people were there. There may or may not have been an angel who stirred up the waters. The Bible does not tell us either way. So just a little bit of a caution there. And if you're reading that, you may wonder why it's in the footnote. Anyway, that's the context. What about the man whom Jesus is about to heal? Leaving the footnotes back into the body of the text, verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So here by the pool, amongst many other people with illnesses and diseases, was an invalid who was helpless and hopeless. First, he was without help. He was an invalid with a condition meant that he cannot walk. He'd been that way for 38 years. He probably wasn't at the pool for that whole 38 years, but he'd certainly been at the pool for a good amount of time. He cannot help himself. He's dependent on others. We don't know where he slept at night. It's unlikely that he slept there. He must have had someone to help move him around a little bit, but when it came to getting into the pool, he was without help. And so in his mind, he was without hope. Verse 7 explains that he had no one to help him in the pool, and so when the waters were troubled, other people would get there first. And it was the first in who was healed. So he was without hope because he had no one to take him into the pool. However, this is all about to change, wonderfully change. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Why do you, why do you think Jesus said, do you want to get well? Surely it's obvious. There's been a lot of debate about why Jesus said that, but to put it simply, Jesus could have just healed the man, but remember, he's always doing these miracles and talking to people so that they would believe. He could have just gone and healed the man and walked on, but Jesus was wanting that man to believe. So by saying, 
do you want to get well? Then there he um, is probing. He's wanting to know. And of course, the man replies, Sir, uh, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always gets ahead of me. So notice that the invalid does not answer Jesus at all. (laughs) He's too focused on his false hope that he does not recognize when true hope is speaking to him. He doesn't know who Jesus is, and he's solely focused on being able to get into the pool, which is why he explains to Jesus about not being able to get there when the waters are stirred. Verse 8, Jesus gives him more than he could possibly hope for. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. You can only imagine the amazement within the man, the thrill, the joy. 38 years, an invalid, now completely healed. He was lying there, and you can imagine that maybe he, he, he tapped his legs, and before where it was all numb, he could now have feelings. And maybe he just gently moved his knee, and it, and it moved. And before long, he'd sprung up, completely cured. And as we wonder at this man now healed and the thrill it must have meant for him, let's pause and consider two things. The power of the gospel and a caution on the gospel. First, the power of the gospel. Jesus still reaches into the lives of those who are without hope and without help. Those who cannot help themselves, those who have no help for themselves, Jesus still seeks out. He still seeks them out and comes to such as these. And for us, our helplessness may be a relationship breakdown. Our helplessness may be a financial reversal that is significant. It may be an illness. Or it may be dealing with grief and loss. We are helpless and hopeless. And yet Jesus seeks each one of us out. And for those that have ears to hear, he says, do you want help? Do you want my help? And for those of us who answer yes, Jesus comes to heal, restore, and make new. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel that is just as powerful today as it was with Jesus and the invalid. So there's the power of the gospel. But there's also a caution here as well. Because though Jesus offers help to the helpless and hope to the hopeless, often we put our hope in the wrong place. You see, the man who was invalid could have said, Jesus, don't be silly. Can't you see that I'm crippled? If you really want to help, carry me to the pool when the waters are troubled. You see, the invalid could have been so focused on his false hope that he missed out on the true hope of Jesus' saving power. And how many of us are like that? Maybe we're trusting in the false hope of our own ability, our own skills, our own schemes, our own bank balance. Maybe we think we're immune to the troubles and the slings and arrows of life because we put our hope in ourselves. Maybe we put our false hope in circumstances that the financial markets will change, that there's a miracle drug around the corner that person that you're estranged to will see sense. And so you put false hope in circumstances. 
And all the while, the devil is whispering in our ear to take our eyes off Jesus and to any false hope that he can get us hooked into. And so while the power of the gospel is that Jesus seeks us out by name and offers us healing and restoration, the caution is many of us are locked into a false hope and can't hear his voice. Today, Jesus is saying to the man, like to the man who, who's got up your mat, you don't need this false hope of the pool of water being stirred. I have given you true hope. Get up and walk. And you'd think this would be the end of the story. A man wonderfully healed, told to leave the pool of Bethesda and to move on and to enjoy life. But there's a problem because he does pick up his mat. But verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Notice the callousness of the religious leaders who are so wrapped up in their laws and regulations they don't have time to rejoice with the man healed. The religious leaders didn't say, Well, this is amazing. You know, 38 years an invalid, we rejoice with you. No, 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 no. It's, you have broken a Sabbath law. Now, many of us know that this comes from the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments says, keep the Sabbath holy. You are to do no work. That's number four. Now, according to the traditions that had grown up to guide people about what was work, one of the traditions was, you cannot pick up your mat and carry it on a Sabbath day. Now, you won't find that in the Old Testament under all the laws. It's not a biblical law. It's a human tradition that had grown up and had taken the weight. You know, so we have God's Bible here, and then as a Christian community, we work out the ways to do things, but they're all subordinate to God's word, aren't they? Well, in the time of the Jewish faith, they had got their laws and traditions and put them up here equal with God's word. And so they are upset that this man would walk on the Sabbath. Now, what was his response? be interesting to see how the man responds to this wonderful uh, healing. And so we see this in verse 11. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed, had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So faced with this pressure, faced with these powerful religious men who had a lot of authority, the man was put on the spot. He could either defend Jesus or push the blame aside. And so he pushes the blame from himself to Jesus, and we think, well, I wonder if this is a pattern. You know, what's he doing here? Surely he should stick up for Jesus. There's a challenge for us here today. You know, the good news, the power of the gospel is that Jesus seeks us out. The caution is that sometimes we are consumed by false hopes. Here we have another caution. There are times in our life when we need to make a stand for Jesus, when we need to put our hand up, so to speak, and say, Jesus is my Lord. Maybe this week, 
in the work context, maybe this week with family or with friends, there'll be an opportunity for you to speak up, just the natural way the conversation goes. And you have a choice to stand up for Jesus or to deny Jesus. Here we see a man who was wonderfully blessed and healed, shifting the blame and not standing up for Jesus. When we come to miracle number six, the, the healing of the blind man, we'll see a contrast because that blind man who was healed, man, does he stick up for Jesus. He sticks up with Jesus, for Jesus in front of the religious leaders, even though it costs. And so here we have a caution and an encouragement to stand up for Jesus. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So Jesus seeks the man out and finds him in the temple and he's sort of saying this, You are healed. Do not waste this healing. This healing will be, mean nothing if you keep sinning. If you continue to keep God at arm's length. And again, there's another caution for us. One blessing and three cautions. This is the third caution. We need to realize that though we may have had a powerful encounter with God a number of years ago, that we cannot rely on that powerful encounter and be lazy in our faith. Some people, they look back and say, well, you know, there's this tremendous healing I had a few years ago or this answer to prayer. But they don't then back that up with trusting Jesus and living a life worthy. Jesus is saying to the man, this powerful miracle will mean nothing if you carry on sinning and don't look to me. And it's the same for us. The man, what does he do next? Well, he then scuttles away. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Dobbs Jesus in. And so we come now to the turning point of the Gospel of John. We pick this up in the next few verses because now the religious leaders know who commanded or instructed the invalid to walk on the Sabbath. So verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is the meaning of this third sign. Remember, each of the seven signs has a significant meaning. The first sign was the water turning into wine, was Jesus announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here, the banquet feast of the Messiah is at hand. The second healing, which was the royal official's lad who was healed, reminds us that the kingdom of God is where God uh, rescues us from the brink of death and heals us and gives us eternal life. And this third sign is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is equal with God. He is God. And so we're reminded about that in John chapter 1. 
right at the very beginning, right at the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And here now in chapter 5, we see the, the religious leaders realizing that Jesus' claim to be Lord of the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath and claiming that he was God's son was a claim to deity, claim to be equal with God, blasphemous and worthy of death. And so from this is the first time in the Gospel of John that we hear or read that the religious leaders are now actively working to plot Jesus' death. And as the Gospel of John unfolds, we see the opposition to Jesus from the religious leaders becoming more intense until all their schemes come together and Jesus is crucified. This then is the meaning of the third sign that uh, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God, equal with God. So what are the implications? Well, I've, I've actually mentioned the implications through this message, so I'll just summarize them briefly. The implications are for us is, first of all, Jesus is in the business of giving hope to the hopeless and help for the helpless. Jesus loves to break into our hurt and our pain and despair. He seeks out those of us who are lost, those that need healing and those that, com that need comforting as we grieve. If you feel helpless, if you are without hope, as you come to the communion table, I pray that you will open your hearts, listen to Jesus' words and invite him to do a new work in your life. Uh, but there's some cautions today. The cautions is uh, relying on false hopes. So we must be careful not to rely on the false hopes, and all of us have them. <laughs> it's a continual battle. You know, we seem to detach from having Jesus as our Lord, and then, then we put our focus onto other things, whether it be money, career, relationships, getting ahead, getting on top. Let us remember to keep our hope fixed on Jesus, who has the power to heal and restore false hopes. Uh, sometimes, often, we're put under pressure, were put on the spot, just like this man was. And this man, he instead of standing up for Jesus, he blamed Jesus. There will be times, maybe even this week, where we have the opportunity to stand up for Jesus. I pray that we will be strong and true. And finally, finally, because we are so easily distracted, as we come to the communion table, let us Fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrew 12, 2, one of my go-to verses. Hebrews 12, 2. As we come to the communion table, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath, that he healed on the Sabbath, because that's what you do. You seek out the helpless and the hopeless. You help and you give hope. You restore and you heal. As we come to the communion table, Lord, I pray that we will all be open to a fresh work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.